0: You're listening to Energy 360 from the Energy and National Security Program at CSIS. I'm your host, Lisa Hyland, Associate Director for Public Programming here in the Energy Program. This week, Justin Wu, the head of Asia Pacific at Bloomberg New Energy Finance, joined my colleague Sarah Ladislaw, Senior Vice President and Director of the Energy Program, to look at the energy transition happening across Asia. Countries across the Asia-Pacific region have seen growing demand for energy for more than a decade, led first by China, now by India, with steady growth across Southeast Asia. At the same time, many of these countries are also shifting to cleaner, renewable energy sources, especially wind and solar. This energy transitioning is also changing regional energy, geopolitics, and the economic relationships there. In this episode, we note three themes. First... The rise of China as a renewable energy manufacturing power, especially seen in solar PV and electric vehicles. Second, the increased use of natural gas and the accompanying growth of LNG exports. And third, energy investments made as part of China's Belt and Road Initiative and the goals of other major economies in Asia to export their energy technologies. Here's Sarah and
1: Justin.
2: Welcome to the show, Justin.
1: Great to be here, Sarah. Thank you for having me.
2: One of the things we wanted to talk with you about is, from your perspective, tracking the energy trends in the Asia region, what are the drivers of them? Um, How have they changed in the recent past, and what does that have to do with geopolitics? So maybe to get us started, um, we could talk about, you know, when you're introducing energy trends in Asia, how do you talk to people about um, what the big ticket items are, and what the sort of small ticket items are, and then what are you thinking about for 2019?
1: Sure, Sarah. So happy to happy to talk about this a bit. <clears throat> um, when I when I look at Asia right now, I think over the last 10 years um, there's been really uh, three major changes, or three three things that have been happening, and I think sort of shifting the dynamics of both. Um, how uh, countries or, or people or companies in Asia think about energy, especially energy security, and also think about uh, opportunities and, and challenges to what they're trying to do with regards to uh, you know, acquiring uh, energy supply and also developing their own domestic industries. So I think the, um, the first thing um, we need to sort of look at and understand is uh, the rise of China, as you rightly pointed out. And when we say the rise of China, it really means... One, um, I think one uh, major thing, which is China as a renewable energy equipment manufacturing power. Mm -hmm. So in the last 10 years, we've seen uh, China invest very heavily in renewable energy manufacturing capacity um, to the point that today, um, over 70% of solar panels are manufactured in China. And of the remaining 30% manufactured outside of China, a lot of them are actually owned by Chinese companies. Um, and the result of that is because of uh, over the years, there's been trade wars with both the European Union and the United States has caused Chinese companies to set up capacity overseas. So that's that's one result of that. Um, but also over half of the wind turbines and over um, almost two-thirds of the new uh, lithium-ion batteries that we hear about going to electric cars, all of that is being manufactured in, in China uh, itself. So the rise of China as, as sort of a, uh, in a dominant position in terms of renewable energy um, equipment manufacturing is, is a very uh, important trend to note um, and, and has a lot of um, – and I think it actually has a lot of impact, potentially will have even more impact in the world uh, in, in the coming years. The second major trend um, I want to highlight also is the uh, the growth of uh, gas and LNG. Um, so you know, previously, um, um, after the Fukushima accident in Japan in two thousand and eleven, we saw a surge of uh, LNG demand in Asia. But more recently, now uh, China, uh, in sort of a bid to clean up its air quality, uh, is shifting away a lot of the coal that it's using for heating and power demand, and using more LNG, including recently buying LNG from uh, the U.S. as well, as the U.S. has become an, an LNG exporter. So actually LNG or gas used to be a very scarce resource in Asia, but because of uh, heavy investment in, in countries like Australia and also in the United States, uh, LNG is becoming more uh, has recently become more abundant in Asia, and that has also shifted a number of dynamics uh, in, in the region as well. Um, and then the third thing, I think, is, um, as you mentioned, the, the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, one thing that we can certainly talk about this, touch on this some more, is that what's interesting about the Belt and Road Initiative is that even before it became officially coined as a phrase, the Belt and Road Initiative, uh, we saw Chinese, but also Japanese, Korean, and other, company, uh, other uh, com- uh, companies from other countries uh, investing quite heavily in infrastructure in these countries, uh, emerging countries in Africa, uh, in Asia, and also in Latin America. So, you know, while Belt and Road became um, a, a term, and it's, it's sort of something that everybody is paying attention to now, um, even before it, it became officially a, a, a coin as a term, um, you know, overseas investment, Uh, especially in large infrastructure, such as energy projects, but also in airports, roads, ports, et cetera, um, has always been a goal of of major Asian companies. Um, And also more recently, Chinese companies, of course, are are doing more and more of this. Mm.
2: So let's take those one by one, because I think each of them is really important and strategic. The first you mentioned, which is Chinese as a manufacturer, Chinese manufacturing of renewable energy technologies. And I think um, for a variety of reasons, there is... You know, recognition of the role that China plays in solar PV manufacturing and their ability to drive down the costs uh, of that, and 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 certainly, you know, in a way, revolutionize the market globally for uh, for solar. Where else do you see China expanding its role as a clean energy manufacturer? We read a lot about electric vehicles and battery technologies. Um, There's a lot of skepticism about the Chinese approach to this, which is one, you know, is it efficient? Is it, you know, successful? Those sorts of things. Where do you see both the Chinese drive to have additional clean energy manufacturing capability? and, And do you think that it's going to be a force to be reckoned with?
1: So I, I certainly think that China is is playing to its strength, um, which you know, as you know, is is around manufacturing, right? So essentially, you know, we we hear um, we've been hearing the, this idea that China is the workshop of the world it manufactures everything. So you know, in, in some in in some sort of capacity, what essentially the government has done in China and the industry has done is play towards its strength, which is. Uh, sort of large-scale manufacturing. Um, And it did this with solar and wind about 10 years ago, and more recently it's doing it with uh, lithium-ion batteries. So, you know, right now we're in the situation where even though the the lithium-ion battery um, itself and the technologies behind it were not invented, you know, originally invented in China and it was sort of imported, Um, But uh, China is, is, or Chinese companies rather, are aggressively expanding their capacity to manufacture lithium-ion batteries. So right now, as I mentioned, about two-thirds of all the battery manufacturing capacity is in China uh, today. But in the next three or four years, that uh, ratio might increase to almost eighty percent. So certainly, that we see the sort of uh, um, you know, if you want to talk about China's dominance in terms of capacity, it's it's going to be there. Um, and then, um, you know, one of the, the key uh, sort of demand drivers here is electric vehicles. So um, it's not a coincidence that China is also the largest uh, market for electric vehicles uh, currently. So more than half of all electric vehicles, of the four million or so electric vehicles sold in the world, uh, are in China, and that number is increasing uh, pretty rapidly and pretty fast. Um, and there's a number of reasons behind it, right? Because for one thing, you could say that it is around um, uh, the desire by the government to clean up the urban uh, air pollution. Mm. So in major cities like Beijing or Shanghai, et cetera, urban air pollution has been um, become a, a bit of a problem and also political liability for the government. So they've addressed it by uh, switching the gas on on heating and industry, but now they're addressing essentially uh, the, the sort of tailpipe emissions from vehicles, and they're using more electric vehicles. So that's certainly one driver. But of course, the other driver, you could say, is also uh, industrial policy, right? A desire to essentially capture the value in this, in this new, uh, uh, potentially what they see as a new growth opportunity. So, you know, we, you know, we here in the U.S. obviously um, don't really buy Chinese uh, cars, But in the future, there's this question about whether or not electric cars uh, will, you know, be from China. And there's certainly, I think, uh, many in in China, in the Chinese government, if you talk to them, felt that they've essentially missed the opportunity to become a player in the global uh, auto manufacturing uh, sort of uh, industry. Mm -hmm. But they see that potentially in the future with electric cars um, or batteries that they can capture this part of the value chain as well. But of course, whether that will happen is still um, a bit of an open question. We're still at the very beginning of this at the moment. Mm.
2: One of the questions we often encounter in policy circles is whether or not the U.S. has lost the competition uh, on electric vehicles relative to China. Do you think it's too early to determine that?
1: Well, I think there's a number of ways to, to think about that question, right? Um, I think if if we measure by uh, success by manufacturing, then I would say yes, uh, because frankly, there is a lot of manufacturing in China, and it's unlikely that we'll see sort of the same amount of battery manufacturing take place in, in other parts of the world. Um, so, so that's that's one way to think about it. But on the other hand, you know, as you know, a lot of auto manufacturing also takes place in the U.S. Um, and in other major car markets. So essentially, it, it is a very local thing, and and batteries. Unlike solar panels, are actually quite uh, heavy, uh, and they're they're quite um, costly to ship around. So we what we might see is actually that a lot of battery manufacturing capacity will uh, be placed near where sort of car manufacturing plants are. So there could be a scenario where, for instance, yes, most of the batteries are manufactured by Chinese companies, but they're manufacturing them uh, here in the U.S or they're sort of supplying their batteries to electric vehicles made by Ford or, or GM or, or BMW etc. So that could be the the case as well. So it's a bit of it's a bit of a mixed picture in terms of how you want to look at it. Um, one other thing I want to mention also is that the raw materials that go into batteries yeah, I was
2: just right? going to mention that.
1: Right. And you know as you know there's there's a there's obviously lithium but there's a lot of other things like graphite, um, cobalt Um, manganese, et cetera. Um, If you look at where these resources are located, actually China um, is actually blessed with all but one of these uh, sort of natural resources. And the one that they're missing is cobalt, uh, which is primarily found actually in the Democratic Republic of of the Congo. Um, And we see that actually Chinese companies are investing in mines and and other things uh, trying to capture this this resource. Um, The only other country that actually is Equally blessed with this is Australia, uh, that has almost all of these uh, components uh, or these raw materials as well. But the major difference, of course, between China and Australia is manufacturing. Australia does not have a manufacturing industry, whereas uh, China does. So in this case, China does have an advantage uh, with regards to battery manufacturing.
2: One of the big questions with regard to critical minerals, particularly cobalt here in the United States that we get is, whether or not it is actually in fact going to be a strategic area of competition you know whether control over cobalt manufacturing in the drc which by the way has a whole bunch of terribly negative things associated with it is going to rise to the area of being a strategic issue or whether or not either batteries will you know be be something that doesn't require cobalt, uh, or there will be other sources of cobalt that are available or a market will develop, those sorts of things. Does it have that same sort of strategic significance when in the Chinese policy context?
1: I think it does. Um, it certainly is strategically important because cobalt is, of course, one of the uh, major raw materials that go into lithium-ion batteries. But I would say that it's. it would be a mistake to think of it uh, in the same way as we think about oil or gas or other fuel based of uh, energy sources um, there's two primary differences. One is that obviously if you're uh, cut off from a supply of cobalt, the batteries that you have you know still work right You don't need a constant supply of cobalt to power your electric cars unlike a constant supply of, of oil or, or gas to to power uh, to power those those facilities. Mm-hmm. Um, the other difference is actually that, we see uh, two sort of new technologies or, or ways of um, making um, sort of this more efficient. One is battery recycling, which also happens to, uh, you know, you know the Chinese are actually looking at that quite heavily. So essentially a lot of used batteries can be recycled, reprocessed, and then the raw materials uh, from them can be used again in new batteries. So essentially... Um, you don't always need a new supply of lithium and cobalt. You can recycle the ones you already have. Mm-hmm. Um, and furthermore, there are sort of new chemistries or new design of batteries that require less of these materials um, in the future mm-hmm. so that um, you know, perhaps we don't need uh, as much cobalt as, as or lithium uh, in the new sort of uh, battery configurations in the future. Mm-hmm. Of course, all of that is a little bit further down the line. Uh, we're not at a point now that sort of cobalt or lithium is... is um, um, constrained. Uh, But certainly, I think, um, if the question is, you know, does the Chinese government or does battery manufacturers in other countries, like even in Japan or other places, uh, see sort of the uh, strategic importance of acquiring these uh, raw materials, they certainly do. Uh, they, They certainly are uh, looking at this right now, and certainly this is something that's being talked about and, and, and uh, quite quite extensively. Mm.
2: Let's move to natural gas for a minute, because I think that your description of the evolution of LNG markets in the region is of particular interest to a lot of different interests um, here and around the world. Uh, certainly, for people who are you know looking for new markets for LNG, you know, Asia is predominantly the story that they're uh, that they're after. Um, countries within the region, we've done a fair amount of work on Southeast Asia in particular, you know, all wanting to have a bigger role in a gas market. But for various reasons, it doesn't work out, mostly for cost-related reasons. And the declining cost of renewables eats away at the margins for gas, as does um, the sort of competitiveness of coal. How how are you seeing the markets evolve for, for LNG in Asia?
1: So there's there's a, there's a couple of things here. I mean, one is you know I'll take take a step back and just sort of um, say a few words about LNG. Um, the the fact is that L- obviously Asia imports a lot of LNG, um, and what's sort of changed in the last couple of years is that there's a growing supply from places like Australia um, and the Middle East, and also from the U.S. That's actually helped. Essentially, um, you know, we're in, we're essentially in a period where LNG supply is fairly fairly abundant, I would say, for the next couple of years um, until, of course, supply picks up, uh, demand picks up a bit more, and then we might be a bit of crunch. But for now, LNG is fairly abundant, um, and it's it's going to more places. Um, what we see is that in the next uh, sort of 15 years, about 86% of all the global LNG demand growth is going to be in Asia. Um, and a lot of that is China, but it's not only China. It's also as you mentioned, Southeast Asia, but also emerging countries in South Asia, like Pakistan or Bangladesh, that essentially are quite uh, power hungry. Um, so so a lot of that um, demand is going to be in Asia. Um, one of the problems with LNG in Asia is is that actually Asia, most of the countries in Asia are, are paying a premium for their LNG. Um, so whereas LNG uh, in places like Europe or in South America or in the U.S. are Really, based on local uh, hub prices, um, which are usually cheaper. Um, LNG in Asia is still mostly indexed to oil, which is um, you know, more, usually means it's a bit more expensive. So, a lot of Asian importers are paying a lot more for, for the LNG. But having said that, I think um, having more abundant LNG has already changed dynamics. So, for instance, um, you, can, you can say that countries like you know, Japan, Korea, and Taiwan, which are you know, generally the three countries that import almost 100% of their energy, um, feel that you know, because there's more abundant supply from, um, let's say, friendlier countries like U.S. and Australia, uh, they have in some ways solved a lot of their energy security issues, right? They see that actually that uh, because this, you know, there's this supply of LNG, it takes a little bit of pressure off um, essentially, uh, you know some of the energy security concerns they used to have, um, which actually creates space for them to f- uh, potentially shut down nuclear power plants and other things, and have that discussion as well. Uh, for countries like China, actually, what's really interesting is China imports now a huge amount of LNG from Australia. Um, it was uh, importing from the U.S., but the, the sort of the recent trade <laughs> spat has has sort of put a put a hold on that. Um, but now China's import. Uh, dependency ratio, in other words, the amount of gas and imports is, is over 40%, which is, which is a lot, right? For the first time, we see that China is actually importing a, a much larger portion of its, of its energy from countries like Australia. But nevertheless, because there is more LNG available, um, the Chinese government has been able to pursue a coal-to-gas switching policy um, to help clean the air in, in urban areas uh, and things like that. Um, And then, of course, you know, as as we move further down to places like Southeast Asia or South Asia, um, as they sort of also think about whether they should do coal to gas switching, or as in cases of countries like Thailand uh, or uh, Vietnam, as their domestic gas supplies are being depleted, of course, they're also looking at an LNG uh, to see if if that's uh, an option for them uh, in the future. So I think having, I think the point is that having more sort of LNG available, at least for the moment, uh, and then also from from a more diversified supply. So you're not only getting it from the Middle East, you can get it from Australia or the U.S., uh, it's certainly giving a lot of these countries a lot more options uh, in Asia in terms of thinking about where their energy comes from. Mm.
2: Uh, a lot of uh, gas dynamics within Asia and, quite frankly, globally uh, circle around the idea of Chinese gas demand. Are there any um, things that you're watching in particular in terms of Chinese gas demand growth or lack thereof? Right, You mentioned the, the opportunity for lots of coal-to-gas switching and a lot of drivers for that. Um, but are there, uh, are there any um, um, questions or doubts in your mind about the materialization of that gas demand in China?
1: So we're, we're thinking that, we're, we're predicting that China will become the largest um, LNG importer in the world in maybe about two years or so, essentially overtaking Japan. Um, and it's, you know, symbolically important, but it's also a very, uh, obviously, you know, uh, sort of substantively important uh, moment when that happens as well. Um, Essentially, a lot of it is is about air pollution. It is about switching um, uh, sort of, uh, you know, urban heating or or sort of commercial uses, switching from coal to to gas. Um, In terms of what could help sort of um, increase demand in China even more is if they invest a lot more in infrastructure to receive the LNG around the ports. Um, The other thing that's happening is is sort of around uh, domestic gas market reform, in other words, Traditionally, gas in China has been, um, uh, sort of the supply of gas has been dominated by the, the major national oil companies. So essentially, they control all the imports of, of, of the supply of LNG. Uh, but the Chinese government now is, wants to open this up to uh, some private players as well. So in other words, you have more and more, uh, even including private companies, are able to receive and import uh, LNG. So that will help diversify supply and create competition and pricing. Um, so, all of that, I think, um, the continued sort of continuing sort of battle against air pollution, the liberalization of the gas market and also investment infrastructure will help increase demand uh, for gas, uh, and especially from LNG in China. Um, it used to be a bit more, um, there was a competition also between pipeline imports from Central Asia or Southeast Asia and other places like that, but increasingly we see that actually LNG supply uh, is, is, is taking more and more sort of, um, well, they're essentially that's taking up a greater share of the import of gas in in China today. Mm
2: -hmm. Let's turn to, um, Belt and Road Initiative. I, you know, often don't know where to start, but, um, it's a, you know, a massive initiative that it's, uh, the, the beauty of the eye, the beholder to to some respect. Um, it's, you know, when we talk about the Belt and Road Initiative in the United States, one of the big questions is what are the drivers, right? Is it about offloading excess Chinese manufacturing or steel capacity? Is it about uh, a soft power play within the region? What are the drivers? And in particular, um, how is it manifesting in the way in which Chinese investment takes place throughout the region in energy?
1: Well, I think it's all of the above, I would say. Um, Certainly, you know, you can take a... um, you can look at it from a political lens and we can say that, yes, it is a soft power approach. I think there's a lot has been written about that, obviously. Um, we see that, you know, uh, Chinese companies investing in imports in, in Sri Lanka or, or, or power plants in Pakistan uh, and things like that. And obviously, that creates, um, um, you know, that creates sort of political influence, or that's an attempt to create political influence. So obviously we can you can see it in, in that sense. Um, but at the same time, you, you can also make a business argument about it as well. Um, for a lot of these Chinese uh, state-owned companies, um, essentially the domestic market for them is slowing down. Uh, power demand in China is not growing uh, as fast as, as it used to be growing. Uh, there's curbs on sort of building of new coal power plants in China. A lot of the rivers are overexploited, so you don't, uh, you're not able to build hydro power plants anymore. So any of these large infrastructure projects um, are becoming a lot harder to build in China. And there's growing scrutiny by the government on the performance of these assets in China itself. So it, this is all pushing a lot of these uh, state-owned companies to look for opportunities abroad. So there's a there's definitely a business case behind it that they want to um, go into countries that still require these large infrastructure projects uh, and to build them there and hope for uh, uh, better-performing assets than, the, than what they can do domestically.
2: Mm. One of the big questions is whether or not there's a um, deliberate or just, you know, it just happens to be this way skewed towards high carbon versus low carbon energy projects within Belt and Road. Is that something that you've taken a look at?
1: Absolutely. And there certainly is. I mean, with the exception of some of the larger hydro projects uh, that Chinese companies have invested in in, in Southeast Asia or in, in Africa, um, a lot of it is is higher carbon. So they are coal power plants or in some cases gas power plants. Um, and again, there's there's actually two reasons behind that. One is that you can't do that you can't build coal power plants in China anymore, so they want to export that technology overseas. Uh, but secondly, it's also about the size of the investment. Um, the problem about a wind farm or a, a solar project is that it's often a lot smaller in terms of the dollars that you invest in it. So it's often um, not worth the trouble of going through the legal or the due diligence to go through a you know a hundred million dollar project, uh, solar project or wind project, when you can essentially do a five hundred million dollar or one billion dollar coal project, uh, and you have to go through the same trouble of, of looking, um, finding the right place and and doing um, uh, you know all the all the sort of due diligence work around it. Um, I will say that um, it's not only Chinese companies that are doing high carbon projects um, in outside of of their own country. Um, Japanese and Korean uh, companies do very much do the same thing. So for instance, uh, in, in Japan, there is a policy to build clean coal projects in Southeast Asia. Um, one is that, again, you can't really build them in Japan anymore. Uh, but secondly, there is a general belief um, uh, in uh, most Japanese companies that the coal power plants that they build in countries like Vietnam or Thailand are cleaner than anything else built by a Chinese company or a, a local company. So, so they make the argument that actually, yes, it's a coal power plant, but nevertheless, it's going to be a cleaner version of that. Um, so, so it's not only you know. So, I think it's not only Chinese companies, but it's. It's uh, it's many you know, companies in in countries like Japan as well. They're doing the same thing.
2: Mm. Two more questions before I, we wrap up. One is you, I mentioned at the outset that the U.S. government has launched its own uh, Asia Edge initiative, which is to you know talk about free and open markets for energy and and U.S.-based infrastructure. Uh, investments uh, in, in Asia as well. Do you see evidence of that in the region? Is that something that's being talked about? And does it get talked about in light of the Belt and Road Initiative? Or is this just sort of a, a Washington focus?
1: Um, I, I personally haven't heard a lot of that from um, the companies or, or governments I've spoken to in, in places like Southeast Asia and others. Um, I think from a, from a geopolitical perspective, obviously, these countries are... Uh, quite interested in engaging in a diverse sort of, uh, you know, group of, of, of countries, right? Not only sort of being reliant on, on China or, or others. Um, so I think there's certainly that desire and there's certainly the, the language. But for the moment, I think that in terms of um, looking at um, energy investment, right, that the choices, if you're India or you're Thailand, um, if you look at energy investment, the choices you really have are actually mostly around your neighbors. And that's sort of China, or Japan or Korea or, or other countries in the region. So we haven't really seen a lot of U.S. Um, sort of uh, investment in these countries. There are, of course, U.S. companies, U.S. energy companies operating in these countries, and they are present. Um, but it's sort of, uh, you know, it's it's not, you know, from what we see, it's, it's not a significant, at the moment, not a significant uh, part of that.
2: So I lied. I'm going to add another question before I ask the final one, which is, uh we've talked a lot about china and with, with for a lot of good reasons right it's just a very large market that's growing quickly and we've talked a little bit about southeast asia which is also growing quite quickly not quite as much about india can you characterize the way you've seen the indian market changing some of the trends in the region
1: sure um i mean india is india is um a little bit um different in the sense that um, you know, it, it's it's certainly a very large market. Um, it, the energy demand in India is growing very rapidly. Um, now, growing, of course, faster than than a place like China, but it still has a ways to go before it, it catches up. Um, you know, I, I was in India uh, in September a couple months ago, um, and there's there's a number of discussions about energy policy there. A lot of it is very domestic. It's it's about sort of removing red tape and and how to. Uh, ensure that actually energy projects or large power projects can be built in the country to to keep up with growing demand. Um, There is also discussion about China and India as well. Uh, One interesting statistic is that 90% of the solar panels used in uh, India are imported from China, um, which is actually causing a bit of Unease in India, but it's it's hard to see you know whether there's anything that can actually change that in the near term because you know Chinese companies are essentially offering very competitive prices and they're uh, offering to even build manufacturing plants in, in India as well. Um, but I think what's also interesting about India is that um, a lot of uh, you know a lot of people see it as a very open market, right? It's it's a difficult one often to to do business in. But people do see it as far more open, and there's competition mm-hmm. there versus a country like China, which is often closed, and there's there's a lot of vendors, to domestic players. Mm-hmm. So we see that India is actually um, making a huge push um, for both renewable energy and also other energy projects. Uh, they run some very competitive auctions, and there's utilities in, in Europe, in Southeast Asia, in um in, in sort of Northeast Asia as well. They're very interested in building projects in India. So I think India is very, you know, it's sort of at the beginning, but it's very exciting from a business perspective. Um, for our team, we certainly get a lot of questions on India these days, um, just people looking at opportunities or at least wanting to stay in um, Uh, stay, you know, uh, informed about what's happening there. Mm.
2: So one final question I wanted to ask, because, you know, the theme of energy transition is driven by a lot of things that we've talked about, energy security, commercial strategy, local air pollution, other, you know, policy priorities. Um, we haven't talked much about climate change. So over the last several years, you know, clearly there's been a change in the global tenor around the climate discussions, partially because of the United States pulling out of or announcing its intent to eventually pull out of the Paris Climate Agreement. Um, Has that had a material impact on the way in which people in Asia are thinking about the energy transition? Is it less talked about or more talked about, or is it just sort of the same sort of factor as it always has been in the discussions you
1: have? Sure, I'll, I'll say two things about that, and I think they're, they might be slightly uh, uh, maybe unconventional to, to what others might say. Um, first of all, you know, of course, I think with the, uh, the Paris Agreement and then the sort of now quite well-known uh, uh, sort of uh, U.S.-China agreement between, uh, you know, former President Obama and, and President Xi Jinping, Uh, you know, there's climate change and also uh, international climate agreements do get talked about. Um, And it's, you know, uh, you know, one could certainly say that, you know, China enjoyed the fact that uh, it it sort of uh, maybe got some of the moral high ground by staying in the Paris Agreement and still uh, talking about it. So it is a topic that people mention and talk about Um, the the Japanese government and the Korean government and and the Indian government, you know, they all talk about it. So it is there. Um, But I would say one thing that's, um, you know, if, if you look at the energy transition in Asia, you know, the rise of a lot of the clean energy um, manufacturing and also deployment, um, a lot of that is, um, you know, driven essentially by economics and business, right? It's, it's not sort of a climate change um, argument initially, you know, sp- spurred the solar industry or the battery industry, manufacturing industries. Um, and then, the, you know, secondary bit is, is around um, in China, it's the air pollution issue that has actually uh, spurred things. And I would argue that, you know, perhaps uh, soon we'll see that in India as well as, as air pollution there becomes a, a bigger problem. So, you know, climate change, yes, it, it is something that's talked about. Um, is it a main driver? That's, that's hard to say. Um, one other thing that we didn't really talk about, but I think is also equally interesting, uh, is what companies or corporations are doing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, nowadays we see, you know, over 100, almost 150 companies, uh, you know, pledging to source renewable energy, 100% renewable energy, or to use some sort of uh, sustainable materials for their manufacturing and, and things like that. Most of these are still um, European or American companies. Actually, only less than 20 of these companies are, are Asian. But nevertheless, of course, where they make all their goods are in Asia. They have all their factories in in Asia. You know, the Apple iPhone is is mostly manufactured in, in China. So, um, if if these companies want to reach their goals of um, you know achieving their sustainability goals, they have to do something in Asia. So, what we're seeing is that actually the the private sector is increasingly. Uh, potentially now pressuring uh, countries in Southeast Asia and China and India as well to do something to either offer them more renewable energy or to offer them um, a better sort of uh, a more sustainable alternative to their production production. Uh, uh, sort of production methods. Um, So that's something that's still at the beginning, but I think it actually could have quite a bit of impact in the next couple of years. Mm.
2: Well, that's great. Justin, you've given us a lot of different things to think about in the context of how the energy landscape is uh, shifting in Asia. Uh, We hope you'll come back and do it again sometime soon.
1: Sure. Thank you very much. Great to be here.
2: Thanks for listening to
0: Energy 360. Find more episodes at CSIS.org and on iTunes, and follow us on Twitter at CSIS Energy.